0: All right, so this is an experiment, but uh, I think it should be okay. What I am doing right now is I, uh, I, am, uh, I am doing this from the car. I am driving from, I'm in Michigan right now, but I am a couple hours away from where my mom is. So I am driving where she is uh, for Mother's Day. Uh, and I still wanted to do this call-in episode. This seemed like the best time to do it. Uh, so I did a little test of this uh, with our graphic designer at GTAA, uh, J. Andrew World, uh, who helpfully volunteered for the test a few minutes ago, and it seemed to work. Like The Bluetooth audio on my, um, in the car seems to work okay to do the episode like this. Uh, but I will say, since I am driving up uh, 127 north of Michigan, uh, as we we're doing this, I really hope that um, the phone itself, but uh, well, uh, but in any case, um, so uh, what I thought I would do with this, and I, as I said, I apologize because I am driving as I'm speaking, so I apologize if we run into, you know, any time when we might be going under bridges or for one reason or another, the connection gets bad for a minute. But if it does, that's this. But uh, what I'm doing uh, is I am... um, Cool. Okay. So, uh, what I thought I would do for today is just talk a little bit about Karl Marx because it was, it was his birthday earlier this week, and I meant to do a uh, Marx's birthday episode. Uh, then uh, he uh, he was born in uh, he was born in eighteen eighteen. So this last uh, this last week would uh, be Marx's two hundred fourth birthday. If you're a vampire or something. Uh, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about the, uh, the man himself, uh, some of his contributions, and then I would talk about something a little bit more topical, which I actually had an article about in Jacobin earlier this week, which is Andrew Sullivan uh, and Sullivan's um, and Sullivan's uh, critique of Marx, which I think is probably a, uh, a pretty ridiculously generous way to put it, call it a critique. Uh, makes it sound, I think, much more thoughtful than it is, but uh, let's just say it's all of its comments on Marx on his uh, on sub Substack. So uh, let's start by talking about Marx himself. Um, so a movie I watched a few years ago is called uh, The Young Karl Marx. Anybody who hasn't watched it, I would recommend checking it out. It's fun. Uh, you know, there are weird things about it. I'm, you know, they the sort of period of Marx's life that they pick to cover in the movie is not necessarily the most interesting part of his life. Um, or certainly not necessarily the most innately dramatic part of his life. It's basically, you know, really it should have been called the young Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, right? Cause it's about the two of them and their relationship as much as anything. And the sort of beginnings of their intellectual collaboration. Uh, and then the two of them kind of basically taking over the communist league, uh, and, uh, and then, uh, and then it kind of ends when Marx is drafting the communist manifesto. Uh, but I think what it captures, um, captures really nicely is a sense that you do get, if you read some of Marx's letters, um, of that this is, uh, you know, that this is something of an overgrown graduate student, uh, you know, I went to philosophy grad school uh, I knew a lot of guys who I think were something like the young Karl Marx and even not that young. And, you know, I was maybe one of those guys too, uh, to, uh, to an extent. Uh, there's a very funny um, Prussian like police spy report about Marx. People may have seen the screenshot was, was going around social media a bit of the relevant passage where this Prussian police spy talks about how he doesn't really keep, um, Uh, he doesn't really keep regular hours and, um, and, you know, he really likes getting drunk and, you know, and he'll sort of spend days not getting. He'll be working for Tetra. Again, all I got out of that is he sounds like a graduate student. Um, but, uh, and so the young Karl Marx captures a lot of that aspect of uh, of Marx, uh, like there's a very funny scene in that movie where Marx is, uh, where like Marx and Ingalls have, have gotten like dead drunk together, I think it accurately portrays uh, Ingalls probably being a little bit better of a drinker than Marx, although Marx was certainly enthusiastic. Uh, About it You know, Ingalls probably had a better tolerance Um, You know, Ingalls There are some letters where uh, I think his son-in-law refers to him as the uh, The great beheader Of champagne bottles Uh, But uh, in any case They're like very drunk And like wandering around And like at one point You know, Marx is like vomiting in the alley But this is also when he's getting the uh, Coming up with that line from the Communist Manifesto or sorry, not from the Communist Manifesto, from the thesis on Feuerbach about how the philosopher is merely interpreting the world and, you know, the point is to change it, which is, you know, really funny juxtaposition. But, you know, I think it probably does capture something about the, uh, about the real person. Um, and, um, <laughs> you know, I, I was joking with uh, Kale, our former producer at GTAA, and current producer, Jackman, uh, Jackman's YouTube channel about uh, about Marx and being like Marx and you know and, and I think I made some joke about how you know people trying to be like Marx so what does that mean? You're going to you know spend all your money on brandy and knock up the maid but uh, in any case uh, I will uh, you know I will say uh, that you also get a different kind of window on Marx if you look at this thing I think it's from the 1860s but don't quote me on that I could be wrong about this But if you look at it on the Marxist Internet Archive, it's called uh, Marx's Confession. And what it is, it's, it's, I guess, this fairly popular genre of Victorian, like, personal writing that's, it's like, basically, it's like a survey is what it is. It's almost like one of those old, like, this itself is a little bit of a dated reference now, but it's also, it's almost like a Facebook quiz or something um, that uh, that a lot of people would take uh, in uh, Victorian England where, you know, they were a bunch of, you know, you were just a bunch of questions about yourself. You know, what are the qualities you know uh, you admire in a man? What are the qualities you admire in a woman? Who's your hero? Stuff like that. And, you know, some of a lot of Marcus's answers to it are kind of jokey. Uh, and, you know, kind of what you'd expect, given everything I just said, but there's a, there is a, a really, this moment I really like in there, um, there's something I'm writing for Jack, about Marx's, uh, you know, about the labor theory of value and exploitation where I might quote this as like the beginning of the article where it says, who's your hero and Marx actually enters in two people who are Spartacus and Kepler. Uh, so, uh, Kepler is the astronomer who's, uh most famous for discovering these laws of planetary motion that you know could help get the kind of what's going on in the night sky in this sort of accord with our understanding of earthly physics. Uh, and Spartacus, of course, is a leader of a slave revolution in ancient Rome. And you sort of put those two together, and you. Get that on the one hand, he's discovering, you know, the laws of motion of capitalist economies. Uh, he's sort of trying to, like he says at the end of chapter, of Capital, chapter one, he's trying to uh, to pierce the veil of market relations to understand what's really going on with the capitalist uh, mode of production. You know, sort of get down into the guts of it and and see how, uh, see how the sausage made. And so he's discovering these, these laws of motion of capitalist economies. And on the other hand, uh, he's, um, you know, like his hero Spartacus, since of course the point is to expand human freedom. Um, I've been teaching a class on capital uh, at Michael Albert's thing, the uh, School for Social and Cultural Change. So we just did today's Zoom session, uh, just before I left, uh, got on the road. Uh, and uh, and which is really a little bit on the Spartacus part, right? right. It's where he really starts to get into class struggle by Karl Marx, it is likely to uh, be the Communist Manifesto, since, you know, it takes about an hour to read, um, and it's it's really good, stirring writing. I remember uh, the Nation magazine in 1998, uh, who when I was already 18, because I'm very old, uh, did a issue on the 150th anniversary of the manifesto. It was like a special issue. There was all kinds of great stuff in there about like how at kind of the height of the social democratic party in Germany, you know, when even Lenin would even later say it was like the model workers party. um, He says that in 1918 in uh, the proletarian revolution of the renegade Kautsky, he says that, uh, you know, up until World War One, that was like the sort of best example of a workers' party that's ever existed. Um, that, you know, back during this kind of hey day, uh, there were German workers who would ask to be buried with the Communist Manifesto and sort of leave instructions uh to make sure that the priest doesn't get in there and try to substitute a Bible uh, for the Communist Manifesto. And there was also a great line I remember, uh, in there about how uh about how I don't. I wish I remembered the name of the writer. I guess it'd be easy enough to look up. I mean, if you subscribe to the Nation and you look at the archives to find this Communist Manifesto 150th anniversary special issue from 1998. But there's um, there's a great line in there where whatever this writer was has this analogy about uh, Casablanca and like the scene in Casablanca where everybody starts to sing the Marseille. And this writer, who may have just been kind of a left liberal, said like the same way you don't need to, you know like the the prose in the Communist Manifesto is so stirring that you know it's it's like that scene in Casablanca you know you don't you know even if you don't personally love France uh, you're still gonna you know want to get up and cheer when you see everybody start to sing the Marseille to defy the Nazis and it's like a, a little bit of that feeling you know anybody with any kind of sort of positive progressive inclinations, you know, reading the Communist Manifesto, which is absolutely true. But if you only read the Communist Manifesto, uh, then some things might confuse or elude you about the rest of Marx's work. Uh, certainly, uh, <laughs> um, certainly, if you um, I mean, if you, anybody who watched the uh, whatever that was, three years ago almost, uh, the debate that Slavoj did with uh, uh, with Jordan Peterson in uh, Toronto. Uh, in Peterson's opening statement, you know, where he admitted uh, that he's basically read the Communist Manifesto. He said he just reread it for the first time since he was 18, which I guess is technically compatible with him pouring through the, you know, Gurdresa, uh, well, he wasn't rereading the Communist Manifesto since he was 18, but also, come on, uh, you know, we know that's not what it means. And certainly what he says about the Communist Manifesto makes it very clear uh, for a couple of reasons. The one I'm, I'm sort of always droning on about is that uh, Peterson said that I think possibly that, well, there's so much competition, but one of the top 50 or so dumbest things anybody's ever said about Marx in that opening statement, when he said that uh, he said uh, that uh, you don't get any sense of the struggle against nature for survival, you know, in Marx, which in fact is the core of, of, of everything that Marx says. The What he calls, you know, man's interchanges with nature, the sort of use of like the raw materials of nature to sort of provide use values for human life so we can survive um, is you know, the sort of core thing in Marx's theory of history because his view is that the sort of, the, those exchanges with nature becoming more sophisticated, you know, as the forces of production, the capacity of a society to produce things uh, becomes more sophisticated is what's ultimately driving everything, the sort of possibility of class struggle itself leading to one mode of production, right, one set of relations of production, Overturning uh, another um, You know that you In primitive communist societies You don't have enough to go around to have a class Of non-producers at all In uh, early pre-capitalist class Societies you do but only if uh, uh, But you know To sort of extract enough for those Non-producers you know you need direct Coercion and then uh, In uh, The capitalist mode of production as markets Become hegemonic over everything Um uh, you've got this situation scenario where workers and capitalists legally are just free, equal free agents contracted together. But of course that whole, uh, that whole metaphor, you know, is, um, is about um, that, uh, you know, that Marx uses explicitly in in chapter 10, He talks about Dante's Inferno, right. It's like, he's sort of going down from the surface appearance of things he says in capital, uh, I think this, pretty sure it's in Capital somewhere that you know there's no need for science when there aren't gaps between appearance and reality. So he's going down beneath that appearance of of a uh, sort of free and equal market exchanges to the bowels of the system to see these relations of class domination uh, that are uh, that are propping it up. Uh, but you know. The thing that's surprising about it, like, you know, Peterson, for example, because he only read the Communist Manifesto, says, oh, Marx thinks everything that happens is only about the class struggle, but what about all these other things, right? It's one of his critiques of Marx. And so if that's your sense of Marx as you're reading Capital, it's very surprising because you have to get to, like, chapter, you know, the end of chapter six to get the first hit, to even get, like divergent class interests and you don't really get class struggle until chapter 10 because he's starting out by talking about um about markets uh well he started out talking about commodities which he says is like the cell you know that like a biologist has to start with the most basic thing the cell and kind of move up from there you know and that the this is the uh this is the live and sell of the capitalist mode of production. It's the commodity. And then he talks about money chapter three is this like endless thing about money as the sort of commodity that becomes the universal, um, equivalent. And you get all this stuff about the labor theory of the value, um, commodity fetishism, you know, all that stuff. But then like chapter 10, which we just got to is like really where all this kind of starts to pay off in terms of, um, in terms of, of class struggle and um and it's really all about you know i mean he's, that's where he's got that famous line of a lot of people if they remember one sentence from capital this is the sentence that uh capital is dead labor you know that's you know feasting like a vampire uh on uh on living labor and you know like a you know like a vampire, you know they, uh, the, you know they, it draws more life. You know the more it can, the more it can withdraw. And so he's talking about the struggle of workers to shorten the workday, and the struggle of of uh, manufacturers to extend it as much as at all well possible, so they can like ring you know, they can like suck every drop of the capacity to uh, to labor out of workers. Uh, and and if you think about how all that works, right? Then he spent all these opening chapters talking about. You know, trying to in his mind trying to uncover the laws of motion of a capitalist economy. And then in, you know, you, you get to, you know, midway through the book and he's he's doing um, you know, you get to midway through the book and that like he's he's sort of showing how all this plays out in terms of this struggle really for freedom, this struggle for workers to be allowed any time for themselves and their families, for you know, for like little kids who were being worked all day and all night in the factories uh, to be allowed any time to just play and be kids. Um, You know, like, you you look at that combination of things and you could really see, you know, what he means when he, you know, he references those two figures, you know, Kepler and Spartacus, and, you know, puts those together as his heroes. You know, I mean, I, I think it really, you know, vividly becomes obvious there. So, yeah, I mean, in Marx's view of history, in a primitive communist societies, you don't have enough to go around to even have a class of non-producers. Then you have the agricultural revolution, and you know this expansion of the forces of production that gives you the possibility of having a class of non-producers if they're coercing the immediate producers—you know, pe- you know, your peasants, your serfs, your slaves—into uh, into producing for them. And then, um, but then with the rise, you know, the the rise of modern industry. You know, you get the rise of this class of private capitalists who are not like hereditary nobles. uh, That they, you know, that there's like the, like who, for whom, peasants have like a legal obligation to labor for that particular noble. uh, But rather, they're in the business of buying and selling the means of production themselves. And what they really need for this modern industrial economy is this mobile labor force, this labor force that's, uh, that is uh, Marx, you know, one of Marx's just acid in terms of phrase And capital is doubly free by which he means both they're legally free to, you know, make contracts with any employer who will have them. Uh, so they're not bound to one place, right? They're mobile. Uh, you know, they can, you know, as, as businesses are formed, go out of business and new ones expand, eat up the market share of others. You know, workers could just go work for another capitalist. So they're mobile, they're, they're free in that sense, but they're also free from any means of supporting themselves other than this. Which, again, I mean, part of this, you know, uh, this first part of Chapter 10 that I just went over with my students, you know, there's this there's this just god-awful passage in there about the sulfur for business, making matches, and, you know, saying that it's so bad that, you know, only the most desperate part of the working class uh, like he he gives the example of half-starved widows are in bad enough straits to be willing to give up their children, you know, to uh, to work in this business, and again, you know, you really get that sense of of Spartacus from there. So, uh, so that's the first part of what I wanted to to talk a little bit about. You know, was just sort of Marx's general you know contributions, and there's a lot more where we could go from there. Uh, you know, I mentioned the labor theory of value, which is the part that even a lot of um, contemporary Marxist theoreticians think that's not entirely right or, um, you know, that needs to be revisited. It's there are all kinds of interesting questions about how that relates or doesn't relate to some of the things that just about anybody who thinks themselves as a Marxist is going to think that Marx did get right. Um, you know, like J.A. Cohen has this great paper uh, pointing out um, that, even if you don't believe in labor theory of value. In other words, you don't think that the exchange value under conditions of equilibrium of a product is purely a function of the average socially necessary labor time that went into it. That's technically the labor theory of value. Even if you don't believe in that, right, what a lot of grassroots socialists really mean when they say labor theory of value is like a labor theory of the products that have value, in other words, the products themselves, are made by the workers and then you know, expropriated by the capitalists. So and that's still true, even if the technical economic claim isn't true. Um, I guess before we move on to Andrew Sullivan, uh, something else that's, that's worth noting is, is actually going to tie into the Sullivan stuff is that uh, Marx was, uh, years ago, I was on the Antifada, and I think J.B. Peck put it this way uh, that uh, Marx was a bit of a messy bitch. Uh, in his letters, in other words, that, uh, that he, he was very, um, you know, he was, he was pretty raw and nasty when he was like uh, talking shit with Ingalls about their factional opponents, right? There's this hilarious passage, I remember I read off on uh, TMBS, a uh, think tank that I was on once, uh, about uh, how where he's describing the anarchist Bakudin, who's his main factional rival within the First International um, as this heaving mass of flesh and fat, and it just goes on from there. It's very funny. Um, But that does tie us into Andrew Sullivan, which is the last thing I want to talk to before I take calls from anybody who wants to get in the queue. So... um, one of those factional opponents who uh, Marx was messy about uh, was Ferdinand LaSalle. Uh, so if you've read, read the critique of the Gotha program, uh, so the Gotha program is the program that was adopted in this initial Congress of what became the you know, German Social Democratic Party, uh, which uh, I've already talked about earlier, So, its historical importance. Another detail that I love in terms of that historical importance is that um, just as a random thing? But East Germany, right? Some people have heard me say this before. In East Germany, the DDR, uh, the ruling party was not technically the German Communist Party. That's not what they called itself. It was called the Socialist Unity Party. Why did they call it that? Well, because you know the there was this kind of shotgun wedding of uh, the this merger of the part of the communist party of the Russian zone of occupation after it became Eastern Europe, Eastern East, what became East Germany, the uh, German democratic Republic and uh, the part of the German social democratic party that was unlucky enough to find itself in the Russian zone of occupation. So obviously it's pretty meaningless as far as, you know, the actual preferences of the people involved go. Uh, but, uh, but I find it really interesting that they did that And the thing that I find interesting about it is mostly that they felt the need to do it. In other words, that the German Social Democratic Party, even after everything that happened, had such deep roots in the German working class that the Stalinist regime in East Germany felt that they they needed that extra source of popular legitimacy, that officially the ruling party wasn't just the Communist Party, it was also the German Social Democratic Party. In any case... All this just goes to the point that this is this incredibly historically important Workers' Party, uh, which is why Marx actually kept his criticisms to himself initially. So, uh, or not entirely to himself, but he didn't, he didn't make them public. So, this document, the Critique of the Gotha Program, which is actually a really important document for understanding Marx and Marxism, because, um, like, it's like one of the places where Marx talks the most about how he thinks socialism. Which is still not very much but he, he does talk about it more there than anywhere else right that's where like that famous phrase the from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs comes from uh usually wildly misunderstood we could talk about that uh if anybody wants to but uh but that that's where it comes from and what he's doing since this is the german social democrats are essentially started you know this Gotha this congress is essentially a unity congress between two wings the german socialist movement one of which is more influenced by Marx, and one of which is more influenced by this guy, Ferdinand LaSalle. And so this this draft program is very, very lasalle in terms of its ideas, and Marx is extremely critical of those ideas for a lot of reasons. that He goes into the critique of the Gotha program, but, interestingly enough, he didn't have it published during his lifetime because he didn't want to undermine his political allies. He just wrote it to be circulated among the Congress delegates that didn't publish it, which I have to say is a degree of pragmatism and willingness to think strategically that is, uh, you know, not an abundant supply among my latter-day Marxists, let's just say that. But anyway, putting that aside, uh, I think that, uh, um, in, um, so that's that's who LaSalle is. He's the guy that Marxists criticize and critique the Goth program. By the way, one of the first criticisms of him there is saying Uh, that labor produces all wealth, which he says is wrong because what about the part nature produces, which goes back to Jordan Peterson doesn't know very much about Marx because he thinks nature is absent from Marx's ideas. Uh, but, uh, but in any case, um, so let's, um, so let's think about this, uh, just, uh, okay, actually let's, let's not think about that. Let's talk about LaSalle. So, uh, so Marx, you know, became a big factional enemy within the German socialist movement of Lasalle. They were friends before, and while they were still friends, he wrote. here, uh, Marx writes this letter to uh, to Engels, where he says some like nasty racist things about Lasalle. Now, um, there is a context here that might make this not as bad as it seems. Uh, still makes it, let's say, not exactly. Uh, you know, twenty first century standards, uh, you know, racially enlightened but uh, but but a lot better than it might seem, which is that there were like plays and games where Marx would play this character called the Moor, uh, who is who was supposed to be black. And so I think people possibly in the context of these games had said these things about how, you know, oh you know, about black people being you know, lazy and Mark's really having been part black and stuff like that. So it's possible that some of what he says in this letter about LaSalle is sort of, you know, cause this is really the only letter where Mark says things like this, right? Like you don't find these comments about racial characteristics anywhere else except for this one letter. Uh, so it's possible that um, it's been suggested to me that it's possible that the context was, that it was kind of an in joke with Ingalls about, things that have been said about him in the past uh, that, you know, he was saying about LaSalle the course of complaining about LaSalle, he was doing this jokey callback about him himself I don't know if that's true or not, I do think it would make sense uh, his his family converted to Christianity when he was like six, but you know, he was born Jewish and, you know, trust me, in a deeply anti-Semitic society, he, you know, he would have been widely thought of uh, as being Jewish despite the family converted and then, of course, him being an atheist. Um, so, but that's like probably the worst, you know, case of evidence um, of, of Marx having bad racial attitudes. Uh, not the only one, but definitely the worst one So Andrew Sullivan wrote just this hideously stupid uh, essay on his Substack about a week or so ago called when will they cancel Karl Marx? Uh, And I don't even remember the name of the book that, you know, Sullivan was reading that inspired the post and he quotes a bunch in in it. But, uh, but basically what Sullivan is complaining about is he says, look, all of these big enlightenment figures, Emmanuel Kant, David Hume, Thomas Jefferson have been canceled by the woke mob, um, but there's this great double standard because they haven't canceled Karl Marx, even though he's so racist. And there are problems with every step of this, right? There's no... There's no aspect of this that really makes sense. For one thing... I don't know what it means to say that historical figure has been canceled. I know what cancel, and I'm not like the kind of leftist who says, Oh, cancel culture doesn't exist. When people complain about canceling, they're just complaining about being criticized. They're just whining. Uh, I actually do think that like a lot of what people are talking about, when they talk about cancel culture is real stuff. You know, it's the kind of stuff Mark Fisher was writing about. It's the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, John, 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 John Ronson's talking about. So you've been publicly shamed. Um, you know, a lot of it's just sort of um, a symptom of our late capitalist high-tech hellscape where a lot of people are really alienated. They feel most connected online. There are bad incentives built into the social media platforms that encourage people to be very cancel uh, There's a lot else we could say about that, but I, I do think canceling is a real thing. But I have no idea what it means to say that historical figures have been canceled. Right? I understand what it means to say that Justine Sacco has been canceled because you know, 10,000 people scream at her that she's a racist online and uh, and she's feeling like harassed and dejected and she can't find work and all that stuff. I understand what that means, but I don't understand what it means to say a historical figure is canceled. Maybe if it was that nobody dares to say a kind word about them because they've been so thoroughly rejected – then that would be it. But in that case, examples don't make any sense, right? Thomas Jefferson is still usually brought up in a positive light. Um, You know, certainly human contour, like, you know, the racist things that Kant said, and Kant really did say some very racist things at one stage of his career. So the racist things that Kant said, or, you know, to a lesser degree, Hume are certainly like brought up and discussed and criticized now. Um, you know, but if just sort of reflecting on the racist things that some long-dead person said and, and thinking, out, thinking about how that might relate to the rest of their work, if that's canceling, I, I don't know how bad that is. Uh, certainly nobody's ever suggested. I've never heard of a philosophy professor who didn't assign Kant every single semester in their introductory ethics classes. The thought of someone teaching an introductory ethics class without at least assigning a few pages For the groundwork of the metaphysics and morals would be bizarre to me. I've been certainly teaching Kant every semester, like clockwork, since I started teaching philosophy classes, you know, 15 years ago, and and nobody's ever suggested that I do otherwise. So Kant doesn't seem very canceled to me, so that's one thing. Um, And, in fact, the racist, you know, things that uh, Marx says about LaSalle you know, possibly in a jokey way that there's a context for, maybe not uh, in that letter have been widely brought up. I mean, like for decades, I mean, I've, I have been, since I have been reading and thinking about Marx, I've been seeing people bring up that passage. And so I don't really see much of a double standard there. I have to say Uh, also when he's talking about, Oh, these enlightened figures who are responsible for enlightenment values are canceled and Marx is uncancelled, uh, that just, you know, seems to miss the elephant in the room here, which is that Marxism has deep roots in Enlightenment thought. People who really don't like the Enlightenment, you know, certain kind of postmodern thinkers, for example, also don't like Marx because they know this, right? Marx is constantly appealing to exactly the kind of thing that Solomon would call enlightenment values, this sort of idea of, you know, expansion of human freedom. Again, as that analogy with Spartacus. Um, so so I think this idea that enlightenment figures are canceled, but Marx is uncanceled, is wrong in every way that could be wrong. One, Marx damn well is an enlightenment figure, uh, you know, a late one, but still. Um And, you know, and two, the idea that these other people have been canceled more than Marx, I think, is wrong too. Sullivan also makes some dumb comments about uh, Marx being, um, uh, what does he say? Uh, That uh, he says that uh, Marx is a major source of inspiration for woke ideology um, except for the way he says it is dumber than that it says like Marx remains a major source woke ideology although strained through the prism of postmodern nihilism and then dumped back out again for American undergraduates or something like that is I have no idea what any of that means I don't think Sullivan knows what it means I think it's just gibberish like I think it has a certain sound to it that he likes but that's about what you can say about that Um, but but I did want to, you know, before I open it up to calls, I did just want to briefly address the other pieces of evidence that Sullivan gives uh, besides this passage about Ferdinand and So the other two are, uh, I guess they're, yeah, two or three, right? So um, so one of them is Marx's reaction to the British colonization of India. Uh, and then along the same lines, well, he attributes it to Marx, but he he means Ingalls, right? Ingalls' initial comments. On uh, the uh, uh, the Mexican War, or possibly the you know the Texan War of Independence, or both. I'm not sh- I'm not quite sure, honestly. Um, and uh, where, but the idea is in both cases that Marx and Engels were like celebrating colonialism. Um, that's the accusation. And then um, and then the the last piece of evidence is on the Jewish question. So on colonialism, I think you have to actually understand a little bit about Marxism to understand what's going on here. Um, you know, like, even if you've just read the Communist Manifesto, you know, the opening pages of the Manifesto are basically prose poetry about the amazing progress brought about by capitalism. Um, that, you know, capitalism has just remade the earth and, you know, capital has remade the earth in its own image. Uh, in a way that, you know, like God in the, uh, the Old Testament, uh, making the world in his own, you know, making, you know, humans in his own image. Um, and, and he's very enthusiastic about it at the same time. And he sees real progress there from feudalism, but he also sees real horrors brought about by capitalism, the Industrial Revolution and all that. And the two are mixed together. and It's all about looking forward to this further progress when capitalism is overcome. So what Marx says about British colonialism in India and, you know, Ingalls' comments about Mexico seem to be somewhat along the same lines is in that same spirit, right? It's it's like saying, okay... you know the british conquest of india is going to modernize the economy and bring about all this progress that then lays the basis for future progress which will of course presumably take the form of first a national and democratic revolution against the british and then a socialist revolution right uh and indeed if you look at marx's um, you know writings you know just you know a few years later when um The what was at least generally referred to at the time as the Sepoy Mutiny. I'm not quite sure uh, what it might be generally referred to now, but basically, the first sort of Indian rebellion against British rule happens. Um, Marx is all for it. He is enthusiastically supportive of. um, He is enthusiastically supportive of uh, of Indians rebelling against British rule. He even has a line. About uh, in his writings about this, I think for the D.R. Carroll Tribune, I might be wrong about this, but anyway, Alpha has a good article. Being that, you know, that, that India you know, India fighting for independence against the British state and British workers fighting for their, their own rights against the British state were natural allies. Um, so so when it comes to India, Sullivan is only telling half of the story, right? He's, he's sort of saying Marx's initial comments, but he's not doing the later half, and he's certainly not thinking about how the two might fit together. Um, you know, it's not even clear to me entirely there's a reversal there, right? I mean, this is... Uh, you know, the whole point of, like, progress that could bring about further progress, that further progress would take the form of revolution. And then, um, and certainly, I mean, he's just going to instinctively side with oppressed people wherever they are, right? Again, Spartacus is, uh, is one of the two heroes there, along with Kepler. All right. Um, so uh, then two and a half, uh, two and a half piece of evidence. Uh, we've got the Eagle stuff about Mexico. And again, Sullivan is telling less than half of the story. Uh, you'd also have to look at, you know, at um, at Marx's writings about the Civil War, where he's very clear that actually no, um, this annexation of uh, Mexican territory by the United States, at least in retrospect, is not modernizing capitalist progress. It's uh, it's an extension of the slave power, and sort of solidification of it, which obviously he was very opposed to. Um, speaking of the Civil War, um you know, Sullivan talks in that article about, you know, he, he says Marxism has a uniquely murderous role in history, uh, which is amazing. Uniquely, right? So worse than, you know, worse than Nazism, you know, worse worse than, you know, the medieval Catholic Church, etc. It's just, you know, astonishingly silly. Uh, and presumably what Sullivan is basing that on is the actions of dictators, you know, your Stalins, your Mao's, who were born after Marx died. Um, and what he's ignoring is the fact that during the time Marx was alive, the only head of state he liked enough to even so much as write the man a friendly telegram was democratically elected. It was Abraham Lincoln who Marx wrote to on behalf of the International Working Men's Association, the First International. And he writes this sturdy letter congratulating him on his reelection, talking about how if Defense of the Union was the watchword of their first term. The watchword of their second should be death to slavery. Um, which is a cause he was very, very, very enthusiastic about. Uh, last comment about Sullivan before I open it up to calls. Um, well, actually, I, I didn't do, did do on the Jewish question, but I could do that. And what the thing I was going to do is uh, the last thought at the same time. Uh, so... This is the last piece of evidence that uh, Sullivan has, although I think it's the first in an order of presentation, which is uh, the anti Semitic stuff that Marx says at the end of On uh, the Jewish Question. And I was just, I always find this so depressing because, like, people who quote that stuff and then draw these wild conclusions about how anti Semitic they think Marx is are just. Basically bragging about it, reveling in the fact that they looked up the quote, but they didn't read the book or the pamphlet. It's a very short pamphlet, really, really a long essay um, that, you know, in the old days before the Internet, like if you wanted to look up a salacious passage, you had to at least flip through the book. The passage was in and there was always the danger that you might have uh, you might accidentally find out, you know, you might accidentally get some sense of what the book is about while you're flipping through it. Now, uh, with the wonders of modern technology, you can just search for keywords. You can find the bad parts, you know, like little kids, you know, adolescent boys, maybe, you know, going through works of great literature to try to find the dirty words. You know, you can just uh, you can just find the bad parts without having to let your mind get tainted with the knowledge of, uh, of what, what it's about. But what on the Jewish question is about is it's uh, it's Marx. It's before he's really a Marxist, but he's well on his way. Um you know he's kind of emerging from Hegelianism, and he's arguing against another young Hegelian, Bruno Bauer, um, who, because Bruno Bauer had criticized calls for Jewish emancipation, in other words, for Jewish people to have equal citizenship rights, um, and Bauer says, "Look, we have a Christian state. As long as we have one, first of all, nobody in Germany really has citizenship. So what's so special about the Jews? Uh, because we're all living under this despotic regime, and anyway." what sense does it make as long as there's a Christian state to say that Jews should have equal rights to a Christian state while they continue to practice this non-Christian religion? And of course, you know, Bauer as this liberal radical, you know, kind of like uh, democratic revolutionary, you know, um, secularist, you know, he says, look, I don't want a Christian state. I want a secular state. Uh, But in order to be, You know, to be part of that secular state and to join us all on equal footing, the Jews should first have to give up their religious peculiarities. You know, they should give up their religion. None of us should have a religion in the secular state. So one way or the other, this idea that Jewish people will continue to practice Judaism should have equal rights is just nonsense. That's Bauer's argument. Marx disagrees with him on every point. Uh, Marx says, no, Uh, freedom of religion and equal citizenship for practitioners of every religion while they're all free to continue to practice privately, you know, whatever religion they have is a natural and desirable part of, you know, the transition from the Anshan regime to, to capitalist modernity, right? To modern capitalist democracies. It's a good thing. Uh, and he, you know, and and Marx in this first part actually argues like a very conventional liberal. He, he quotes the, um, You know, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, you know, from France. Uh, He quotes all of these, like, classic bourgeois, democratic kind of revolutionary sources to show, no, the progress towards a modern secular state does not require everybody to give up their own religion. Uh, In fact, freedom of religion is a core part of what that means. Uh, Now, of course, Marx is just as much of a militant atheist as Bauer, but he says, you know, trying to get people to... um, You know, like harangue people to give up their religion sort of misses the point. Marx's view is that you have, um, is that, you know, you're going to continue to have religion as long as you continue to have a society. uh, This becomes clear if you read this in conjunction with the introduction to the critique of the philosophy of right. You're going to continue to have religion as long as you have a society where the sort of material injustices cause so much suffering that people have to seek out solace and religious illusions, you know, that uh, if you want to get past that, you have to go past capitalist modernity to a deeper form of freedom, i.e. socialism. And in the course of making that final point, uh, that's where they, you know, he does get a little anti-Semitic. You know, he says, he basically has an extended pun on the word and probably mispronouncing it, but Judaism, which uh, in German colloquial usage at the time has the sort of double meaning of Judaism and commerce. And he says, well, if you want to overcome Judaism, meaning like the religion, and what you know, overcoming Judaism, like overcoming religion in general, which would of course mean overcoming Judaism, you have to overcome the real Judaism, i.e., commerce, right? Uh, And so he's making this anti-capitalist point, but he's using some sort of anti-Semitic cliches and anti-Semitic analogies to make that point, but he's not using those cliches and analogies to, you know, the cliches and analogies themselves are anti-Semitic, but he's not trying to make an anti-Semitic point. He's making the opposite of an anti-Semitic point. He's arguing against Bruno Bauer and for Jewish emancipation, right? For freedom of religion, and then for going forward to a deeper form of freedom in which religion would probably wither away. That's the point of on the Jewish question. So, I mean, Sullivan's reading of this is just illiterate. You know, he's just found a salacious passage you probably saw quoted somewhere, and he hasn't bothered to find out what the pamphlet itself is actually about, which is fucking pathetic. Uh, He also says in there that... um, That... um, You know he describes Marx in the course of saying, oh, all these Enlightenment thinkers have been cancelled, but not Marx. He says, despite the fact that Marx is, this is almost unbelievable, but this is a real quote from this dumbass essay, he says, despite the fact that Marx is one of the most repellent anti Semitic races of the 19th century, which just really makes you wonder what Sullivan thinks the 19th century was like. Uh, I suspect that uh, my ancestors and you know, the shtetl uh, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, before the war started, I would jokingly insist on saying the Ukraine, but now I feel bad about it, so I'll just say Ukraine. Uh, but uh, uh, the, you know, I suspect that my shetel dwelling ancestors would have had a much better version, uh, time in a version of reality where Karl Marx really was one of the worst anti-Semites of the 19th century. This is an absurd thing to say, right? One of the worst anti-Semites and racists of the 19th century? Really? This is a century where Again, mid nineteenth century in Germany, Jewish emancipation was an aspiration, not something that had already happened. The issue of whether you know Jew- Jewish people you know were certainly legally restricted in tons of ways in many countries. Uh, the idea of equal legal rights for Jews was you know a reality to some extent in a couple of the most liberal countries, uh, but was very much contested territory. Right, that was very much a live issue whether Jewish people should have equal citizenship rights as uh, Christian people in Christian countries. Uh, This is the century where the blood libel was still very much alive, where pogroms were a common thing. This is the century where the Pope uh, there's a Commonweal article about this that's a progressive Catholic magazine that I I have a hyperlink to in my Jacobin piece about Sullivan. This is the century where one of the most important popes endorsed the blood libel, right? The libel that Jewish people uh, uh, kidnapped and killed Christian children to use their blood in uh, religious rituals, you know, bake it into matzah and stuff. Uh, like, you would have to be probably more anti-Semitic than Richard Spencer is to be even an average anti-Semite of the 19th century, never mind one of the worst anti-Semites of the 19th century. That is an objectively insane thing to say, and same thing even more so for racism. This is a century where one of the worst wars that's ever happened, you know, certainly the Western Hemisphere, was fought um, as a result of the Southern states uh, rising in rebellion to defend the institution of slavery, which was the explicit goal of that rebellion, and which was constantly justified in Confederate propaganda uh, by the alleged natural inferiority of black people as a race to white people as a race. Again, you would have to be like, this is a century in which many, many, many people defended racial slavery. The idea that Karl Marx who was a um, an adamant opponent of slavery was even a you know, even like a median racist of the 19th century, you know, never mind one of the worst races of the 19th century is just delightfully insane. So um, don't read Andrew and Do read Karl Marx. Uh, thus ends the monologue. Let me open it up to calls. We have Sean.
1: Man, thanks for hosting this conversation.
0: Yeah, thanks for calling in. What's in mind? Um.
1: <clears throat> well, I was thinking about uh, video games as they relate to Marxism. Yeah. And uh, how much money and time people spend escaping into a reality where they have somewhat control over the outcomes, and um,
0: at least well understood rules and you know the possibility of good things happening. Yeah
1: and it had me thinking um we're really lucky to to be living in the 21st century where we have a ubiquitous internet and yeah there are a lot of downsides to the internet like as you outlined a little bit before where people don't necessarily have to read as much but um I think we have an incredible power of of being able to Reach millions and millions of people instantly, uh, poll them, you know, get their opinions on things. And I thought to myself, we should be creating like a, a political party slash organization, uh, vehicle that, that incorporates this relatively new technology that we're still trying to learn how to use. Uh, and, my theory was that the way all the marketing research and stuff that's been put into video games has is well understood by the intelligence apparatus and by the military and it's utilized like to a much better extent than, than we've been able to catch up to as as a leftist movement. And I think if we had an organization that was structured Kind of like some of these games where people create communities on Discord servers where they spend hours yeah. and hours and hours discussing this stuff. They build identities around it. I mean, they become seriously, seriously invested in these worlds that they have some agency in, some some level of community in. Yeah. And I think we're missing a massive opportunity uh, as... The left in, in trying to organize like this. And my, my idea was that if we were to give people rank based on organizing, based on, uh, attending events, and for those of us who, you know, for whatever reason, maybe we're not healthy for sharing content, um, and, and doing all kinds of stuff, you know, online, that people kind of tend to sneer at. But let's not forget that this is the same technology that got the biggest amount of people ever across the country and to some degree across the world to protest for civil rights. I mean, if we can direct this energy and use it to organize, I really think... I really think that we could create a much more effective political organization i don't even want to say political party because the democrats and the green party and the the libertarians they don't use their platform to organize like you don't see aoc uh giving people credit for you know organizing too often right but if we had like some sort of reward structure where say you know maybe you're my favorite uh content creator online and i've organized you know uh 10 events in my area and as a reward you're affiliated with this political organization so i can have a 10 minute 15 minute whatever segment on your show yeah i feel like i feel like that's a really great way to engage people and to get them invested into a fight, you know, that, that might not necessarily be a winning fight right away, but it, it, it allows people to get to the top of that Maslow's, uh, you know, the Maslow's, uh, hierarchy of need where people feel like they have some sense of self-actualization. And I feel like, you know, in these traditional, um, top down leadership structures of these parties, people people can't get that from ah. the political system right now. And we need to we, we need to come up with uh with a new organization method. And that's the idea that I've been toying with. Um trying to get people involved into the conversation. I created a Twitter at Spruce Wayne ten. Yeah. If anyone's interested but I'd love to have your thoughts on it. All right.
0: Well, yeah, thank you so much for that call. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think if I if I have anything to, to add to that. I mean, I, I think that, you know, what the sort of relationship is between um, sort of, you know, traditional organizing, like like in a workplace, for example, and... and uh, and things that you could do online uh is I mean, that's a big question uh i'm you know off the top of my head i'm not sure how much i have to say there but um, but I, I do like very much the part at the end about basically trying to find a way to sort of integrate you know i'm, I'm using my my own words here you know but I, I think this captures part of what you were saying trying to integrate left media a little bit more with um you know, with organizing efforts, you know, that they, that like, you could sort of, you know, the the thing that, you know, the, you, uh, you know, you do the organize the 10 events or whatever in your, uh, in your area, and then there's something that you can do with a content creator or something like that. I mean, I, I think that that's, I think those are, I think those are good lines to think along. Uh, I think that's like, I think that's really useful. Uh, but I, I will I will mull that more and see if I have anything more to say. But you want to give people that Twitter handle one more time, make sure everybody
1: got it. Yeah, man. Thanks. Thanks a lot. It's Spruce Wayne. Like like Bruce Wayne, but with S P in the front instead. Spruce Wayne ten. Spruce
0: Spruce, like spruce Trace, says Spruce Wayne yeah. ten. All right.
1: Awesome.
0: Yeah. All right.
1: Thanks for that, man. Really appreciate it. All
0: right, Lance, what's on your mind?
2: Yeah. Hey. Hey, Lance. Break it up a
0: little bit. Okay. Yeah, I hear you now.
2: Yep. Okay. Good. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to get your um, thoughts on this. So, you know, I love listening to Richard Wolf, who, of course, self-described Marxist. How appropriate to channel him um, when you're celebrating Marx's birthday. And you know, I always love his takes on things. And obviously, he's a Marxist. And he points out that the founders were not trying to slip in a new version of slavery. They wanted to phase it out. They eventually, with the 1808, you know, no more importation, and said it lasted another half century thanks to Eli Whitney. But that the founders didn't want, they, they thought they were going to have something decent. They didn't think there was going to be this much inequality and all the rest. I honestly don't think that. Now, okay. in my opinion, Adams and Washington, or say Hamilton, you know, the, the federalist minded uh, founders, I honestly don't think they wanted what we have with monopolies and this ridiculous inequality. You know, And they were aristocrats. They wanted the patricians and they wanted the capitalists to run things. But here's my question. See if you agree or disagree. Sure. That, that the current left, even progressives, at least certainly the, the Democrats who call themselves left, they're, they're, they have a skewed view of, of capitalist and capitalism, to wit, okay? Growing up, we had, maybe they thought it was going to work out fine. Then we had the robber barons. And since then, every rich person in almost every movie or every uh, you know sitcom has been the Monopoly guy. It's been a goofball. It's always been the guy with a stick up their butt in sitcom. Oh, you rich kid, Bowery boy, dead end kids. The rich kid comes in and he's clueless. We never yeah. revealed the so Warren Buffett, the cuddly old grandfather billionaire, Bill Gates. Oh, he's just a nerd who did good. And uh, oh, Jeff Bezos, I don't know. He's pretty evil, I guess. I don't know. He seems out of the box. Oh, and boy, look at that quirky uh, Elon Musk. Boy, he's so clever. Yeah, his, his family had minds that were worth bazillions of dollars. He was born on third base, all this stuff. And it's like, why do we, where, where do we get this this inversion of, so like, You know, we talk about the Bill of Rights. People really think that something that was a a, a, a putting into words were, were inalienable rights that were already there. We seem to think corporations are like that. But corporations were a construct. Corporations are people. Well, my God. That's so absurd, and I'm not a lawyer, Supreme Court, you know, uh, constitutionalist. But you know, the idea that corporations were allowed to exist because they were going to help society—now we think, oh no, man, they got rights like people. We just have to recognize, oh well, we'd love to stop them, but they have rights the same way that the Bill of Rights protects people. Corporate law is not like that. Anyway, I'll stop there.
0: Yeah, so um, so definitely with you on the last part. I mean, actually bringing it back to uh, to Marx a little bit, like I think that one of the you know one of the big themes of Capital is the idea that you know of of people you know him like attacking like mainstream economists at the time for not really making a distinction between the specific way that like the capitalist mode of production was and just like production in general, right? Like I'm just talking about the way that things happen to work under capitalist economic structures and talking about that as if it were, uh, like eternal laws of nature, you know, this is just how it is, you know, this is just how it is, uh, you know, sort of what he calls the the sort of material realities of production, the like actual physical logistical things that you need to do to produce things and the sort of social arrangements that are accompanying that. Right. So he, he says, um, that, uh, so he attacks people like, like James Mill for, uh, you know, who he thinks are, are not attending to that, uh, that distinction. So I, I think that this sort of thing about corporations, like you're talking about might be like a really extreme version of it, right. Cause this idea that like you give a, um, you know, limited liability company that, you know, that you have that, uh, that you give like a business enterprise, this like collective legal identity, right. As like, as, as like this weird legal fiction that it's like its own person, um, as like a convenience so that it can do, uh, you know, it can do things, you know, cause it, it makes it, you know, basically it saves a lot of paperwork that you know You don't have to have every person who's invested in a firm, uh, you know, have their name on everything you have, uh, you can do, um you know, it's, there's some like protection against like lawsuits and stuff that makes it easier to have business activity happening. Right. But these are, like you said, these are like pragmatic reasons. These are reasons why it's supposed to be good, allegedly for society, you know, to, to have this and you know whatever, maybe while we've got capitalism, it really is easier to do it that way. Um, You know, that's plausible, but it's, it's still, that's just a different thing, you know, but that's the idea that like inalienable rights, right. So the, you know, the idea uh, that there are, you know, there are some rights that like the founders, you know, like Jefferson, you know, says in the declaration uh, that, you know, you're created with these rights, which is, you know, maybe there's some like taking the religious element out, which I actually think you probably should for understanding what Jefferson is saying uh, that, you know, these are rights that everybody just has, you know eternally just by virtue of being a person you know the idea that that would apply to these legal constructs is is pretty amazing right and that's something that was just kind of slipped is you know i mean it's, it's funny you know because people talk you talk about the constitution and uh, you know you don't hear this as much anymore but like i feel like back in like maybe the bush era something that conservatives were just endlessly talking about was like activist judges who would like make stuff up that will, you know, in their like Supreme court rulings that wasn't really in the constitution. uh, You know, they would interpret it and like find these new rights that weren't really there and all this stuff, which is of course very relevant, you know, since uh, this awful news that, you know, Roe v. Wade uh, is being overturned. Uh, But, you know, the corporate personhood is like the most extreme version of that since that's something that like, a late 19th century case about railroads that just kind of asserted that the 14th Amendment's protection of
2: uh, yeah. all persons. Yeah. yeah. Could I ask you a quick question? So, in other words, get your response to this too. Again, this inversion of, of the way we think about the Constitution and stuff, which is that, well, if it's not in the Constitution, as if. They didn't explicitly say the thing's only seven pages long and it was written in, an eight, in the 18th century. The idea that no, 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 seven pages. These guys were, these guys were, date guys were from God. So they, they anticipated everything forever, you know, and, left, and, and they made it very difficult to amend the Constitution. So they didn't say, hey, you want to amend the Constitution? Go for it. So what happened to the idea that, so why can't I use the same argument to Alito and say, well, if it's not expressly, you know, uh, 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 prohibited in the Constitution, then why isn't it allowed? And when one more quick thing, right? So it, yeah. it's they, they say that if we're not, they specifically say we do not want to, we, These are not all the these enumerated rights. Do not imply that that's all the rights you have. They say that specifically in the Constitution, as far as I know, not just in a, a separate document, like the, uh, Declaration, which no, is that's, of important. That's, the, that's, the, you that's know? A,
0: the, the Ninth Amendment, yeah.
2: And the other thing, two more quick points. The uh, Alito is, is lying, and he's smart enough. You know, these people are not idiots; they're just really smart, and you use it to cudgel things, to take things to the right. Ben Franklin wrote about medicinal ways of abortion, and it was a he used a medical doctor of the time to, to that. You know, he put that in there. You know, and and it was a it was so there was. What you could do medicinally to induce abortion. There's been plenty of times during history that it was allowed specific uh, and so and, and then of course the other really clever thing like originalism, which forces everything to the right, it has to be here's what he says deeply rooted in history. Wonderful. Go back 100 years and you have rights for, you know, let's say starting now with gays and you have rights for blacks and you have rights for, the further back you go, the right protected white men. So that's another clever little, you know, it seems very innocuous to anyone who doesn't look at just beneath the surface, scratch the surface a little bit. But to say that if it's deeply, quote unquote, rooted in history, oh, good. So you can go all the way back to common law with some misogynist. But this guy's a hail that they keep quoting. He was a whack job at his time. Nobody believed that he was you know, all this wizardly and witchcraft shit was already going out the window. So he wants to go back to Hale because why? It's more deeply rooted, some misogynistic evil person from the 18th century because it's longer ago? Another bullshit argument right on its surface without having to have much legal knowledge.
0: Yeah, um, and I mean, I guess the point that a lot of people uh, will want to make here is um, that, well... I mean, really, in that in that ruling that I think superficially sounds the most plausible is he says, look, all we're doing is we're just uh, returning the issue to the people's representatives, right? That there were all these, like, state laws against abortion, and they were struck down in Roe versus Wade. And so now they are, like, returning it to the sphere of democracy. And this is a point that I've even seen some people who I will not name here but who I respect uh, I've seen them like sort of make the point like well, you really can't complain about it in terms of democracy because like now you know now elected representatives just get to decide what the abortion laws are and i and i I find this pretty disingenuous I mean not that everybody who's making it is being disingenuous but i I find it a little ridiculous for, for Alito to to make that argument and i I think this stops making sense if you think about the broader context a little bit. It's, it's one thing to say that the Supreme Court has, has too much power in the American system. I actually do think
2: – oh, what's that? Yeah, yeah. No, no, exactly. Uh, so uh, what he says about um, uh, what you just said, uh, the very previous thing you just said about um, the uh, letting it go back to the states, this is why that's disingenuous. There's two other options that are there. Nobody disputes this. He, he doesn't say – and it could go back to the states. Or Congress can make it can codify Roe v. Wade and make it universally a law that allows it, or they could Republicans could take power and make it a national law against abortion. He doesn't give you those two other options.
0: Yeah, so, so this is the thing, right? Like it really is true that in the American system the Supreme Court has like a tremendous amount of power that it that like there's no equivalent to in most democracies. Uh, like, that's, that part is true. Right? I mean, like, the high courts of most liberal democracies don't have the power to just overturn laws in quite the way that the American Supreme Court does. Um, so what we have is called strong-form judicial review, which is the idea that the court can just say, no, this law is invalidated because it contradicts our interpretation of the Constitution. And uh, a lot of, like, parliamentary democracies around the world, maybe at most they have what's called weak-form uh, constitutional review which is uh, weak form judicial review which is that uh, like the High Court can maybe make recommendations that like then go back to Parliament to decide what they're gonna do with but there's still a mechanism for Parliament by a certain vote overturning it or you know whatever but like it's it's perfectly fine to, and I actually full disclosure I have said that uh, Previous places that I actually think the Supreme Court has way too much power in the American system. But I don't think you can go straight from there to it's like a net gain for democracy to return the issue to the people's representatives, you know, like Alito says, uh, because I think the context that's ignoring is a couple things. First of all, Roe v. Wade is wildly popular. Like, something like 60% of Americans uh, consistently say in polls that they don't want it overturned. Uh, and uh, and right now, the main thing stopping Congress from codifying Roe v. into law, uh, like you suggest, is a, is a second really undemocratic feature of the American system, which is the filibuster, right? Which is not part of the Constitution or anything, but it's certainly part of the system, in the form it exists now, uh, because you know there's a majority. Of senators who you know who are pro-choice Um and you know I mean it's already passed the house Uh so the filibuster You know so which is the second undemocratic Thing about the american system Stops congress from being able to do the public's Will in terms of Uh codifying Roe Versus way into law and then If you start to look at what the effects of reversing It are well look In places like michigan my home state which is actually Where i am right now visiting um Like Michigan is a place where, you know, a like significant majority of people are pro-choice, you know, in in polls that, you know, I think it's like something like 50 or 60 percent, you know, yes, abortion should be legal under at least most circumstances versus like 28 percent who say no, it shouldn't be illegal under most circumstances. Uh, Michigan has elected a pro-choice governor Uh, Every election since, I I think George H.W. Bush won Michigan in 1988, and of course Trump won in 2016, but other than that, every election started in 1992. The pro-choice candidate won Clinton twice, uh, Al Gore, John Kerry, Obama twice, uh, Biden. Uh, So it's, you know, by all evidence, a very pro-choice state, but as soon as this ruling goes into effect, Abortion is going to be outlawed again in Michigan because there's this law from 1931 that is uh, still on the books that was just invalidated by Roe versus Wade, but now it'll go back into effect. That's this incredibly draconian law from 1931 that doesn't even allow for exceptions in the case of rape or incest. Um, And, you know, maybe the Michigan Supreme Court will strike it down. We'll see. But if it doesn't. Right. That means, you know, and and Michigan is not alone in this. There are lots of states that still have laws on the books against abortion. And it's not necessarily the case that in every case you can, you know, like just because most people don't want it there, you know, they'll be able to strike it down right away. There are all kinds of wacky districting things that happen with state legislatures that have these weird countermajoritarian effects. There are lots of things that stop that. So what we're talking about is this wildly popular guarantee of a really basic human right. I mean, I, I saw somebody, you know, dispute this on uh, Twitter earlier today when I said this uh, with reference to people protesting outside Brett Kavanaugh's house. But I really do think in some ways the right to control what happens in your own body is like as basic as civil rights again. Um, and that's yeah. like, you know... And so you're overturning that for half of the population in all of these states, yeah. even even though most people support that right. Uh, and there and there are other democratic things undemocratic things about the system that stop elected representatives from being able to reverse that. So yeah, I think that the I think that in that context, look, in a more democratic system with the Supreme Court have this much power, no, I don't think it would. But I don't think you could look at it a la carte. I don't think you could just say, well, You know, it would be more democratic if the Supreme Court didn't have this power, therefore... And um, and it can be codified, you know. And this is going to have a loss of basic rights for half the population, just a massive amount of the uh, the country. So I actually think it's a pretty giant loss for democracy. Um, I do want to go back to the first thing you said. Uh, Thank you, Lance, so much for the call. Uh, That was a great call. I want to go back to the first thing that you said at the beginning of the call and talk about that a little bit before we end the episode. So the first thing Lance said at the beginning of the call was about the founding fathers. And of course, that's specifically about the American context. And, you know, if we're talking about American history, I think we could politically distinguish between different founding fathers. Uh, You know, I think Thomas Paine's politics were about 10 billion times better than Alexander Hamilton's, for example, Uh, Paine, was uh, a supporter of like early like proto trade unions uh he had some ideas for like a you know something like a proto welfare state uh you know he was certainly a very aggressive secularist democrat uh, supported you know he f- participated in the french revolution uh hamilton is, is kind of a nasty aristocratic banker who does not deserve to be glorified in musicals but in any case abstracted a little bit from the American context I think what he said about the founders I think we could say we could talk not just about the founders but about like bourgeois democratic revolutionaries in general. In other words um, liberal revolutionaries for these revolutions at the end of the 18th beginning of the 19th centuries that got rid of And like, little, like philosophers, your John Locke's, people like that. And we could ask some questions about them um, and that go with what Lance was bringing up at the beginning of his call. So I think that they, they said, well, do they think it was going to be like this? And I think, you know, is this what they wanted? You know, this, this kind of like rampaging level of economic inequality where most people have very little political power. And I think yes and no, right? I think a lot of these guys did mistrust poor people for sure, but also I think things looked very different at the dawn of capitalism than they do now that it is not only well advanced, but, you know, senile. Uh, so uh, at the dawn of capitalism, I think the emergence of capitalism looked in a way that you didn't have to be like the equivalent of a crazy libertarian ideologue from twenty twenty two, to to associate capitalism with freedom because the dawn of capitalism really did mean an expansion of human freedom and, and equality, right? Because everybody is at least a equal before the law, could make contracts, and this could be a citizen and all this stuff, uh, as opposed to all of this old crap that had existed before that, that that stood in the way of it. Um, but of course that's a perspective that only makes sense if the only two possibilities you can conceive of are that kind of formal legal equality under capitalism and like pre-capitalist stuff. And so, of course, you know, if you're opposing the reactionaries holding on to the pre-capitalist stuff, then, you know, modern capitalist equality sounds great. Um, You know, but if you have in front of you a frontier of expanded freedom and equality that you could get by pushing on from capitalism to what Marx calls in capital the the society of associated producers. In other words, socialism, a society where, um, you know, the working class is in the saddle and it's not, you know, it's not the working class anymore because that's not the class of society that has to work for the people who own the means of production or, you know, workers, the immediate producers actually, actually just run things. Um, that that's, you know, that would be a massive expansion of freedom and equality, or even short of the achievement of a society of associated producers, that kind of final victory in the class war, just like victories in class battles, like just getting Medicare for all, for God's sake, you know, are things that are expansions of human freedom and equality that uh, you know, if you don't have to worry that if you make your boss mad, you won't have health care anymore, you know, that is a That is an expansion of human freedom, right? You know, to, to do what you want to not, you know, be quite as subordinate, you know, to, to the boss, a small expansion, but an expansion. Um, so I remember Thomas Jefferson has a line, I think in a letter or something where he says that all, you know, everybody by nature is either a Whig or a Tory. In other words, either like a, you know, know, late 18th century, early 19th century liberal or late 18th, early 19th century conservative. Um, and um, and that kind of says everything, right? It's just the idea that there's a, a possibility beyond being a Whig or a Tory, you know, just, just wouldn't have been on his radar. So I think the answer to,
1: you know, would
0: those like early liberal revolutionaries want things to be like this is, yeah, it depends what you mean, right? I mean, I think that the idea that uh, you could have a society in which very clearly capitalists were the obstacle to uh, greater freedom and equality rather than the people fighting for some measure of freedom against the remnants of feudalism would have just been very alien to them so in any case one guy I was not alien to uh, was Karl Marx uh, 204 years uh, born 204 years ago this week Um, happy belated birthday comrade Karl we are going to leave it there for today left is best